0: pray lord we thank you so much for your word that guides and encourages us lord you have spoken through your word help us to have listening ears and open hearts so that we can serve you and honor you in jesus name amen i'm sure we've all heard the phrase glass half full and glass half empty it's a way of working out if you're an optimist or a pessimist One psychologist surveyed 13 people who worked in his office with a simple question after putting a glass of, half glass of water on their desk, is the glass half full or glass empty? Three of them said empty and nine of them said full. And the computer tech guy complained and said, technically it's not quite half. Our passage today challenges us to be spiritually glass half full people. It is an amazingly positive passage and no wonder, you know, it's Mao's favourite passage. And I'm sure many of us would put our hand up and say, well, mine too. But it's not just positive as in be a positive thinker. It's rather choosing to see that good that God is going to do in all things. According to his purpose. It's a way of looking at events in life. This section, this passage concludes the first eight chapters of uh, Paul's teaching in Romans. And it's amazing that he finishes after wonderful teaching about salvation and all the things he says in Romans 8, which is amazing doctrinal teaching. You know, he finishes with his great... Message of victory. That's how he concludes. What's all the theology? What's all the salvation? What's all of God's work in us? What does it all finish with? An amazing feeling of victory in believers. That should be a challenge to anyone who says theology is irrelevant. (laughs) Theology concludes with great victory. So let's look at it. The first great statement that Paul makes is that God works for our good in all things to bring about his purpose. Let's read that now through a few different versions because there is some, you know, uh, different way of uh, translating, you know, the original here. Verse 28 in the NIV, as we read, said, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. In the New Living Translation, they translate it as, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And the New RSV says this way We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So some translations say God is at work and others just say we, all, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God. Those three translations show us how this verse can be read. In fact, the original word God is not in the original translation, uh, in, in the original text. It's, but he's clearly the subject of this activity. Because God is mentioned immediately before in the verse that came before. Um, Verse 27, and we and he who searches our hearts know the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works. So he's mentioned immediately before it. And he's also mentioned immediately after the verse about working all things for good. So it seems very obvious that who is he talking about that works this good? It's God. You know, when you read it, that's the way it, it, it sounds. In normal life, we know that not all things just in themselves work out for good. We just know that, don't we? There are some horrible things that happen in the world and to us. Things that take a long time to get over, things that hurt very deeply, and that we can almost, you know, be distanced from God because we can say, "Well, why did you let this happen, God?" You know, we have that reaction. I went through a period of that in my life, definitely. And when I used to read this verse or had it quoted to me, I just used to put up, you know, the barriers. I don't want to hear this. I wasn't ready to hear this verse when i went through that tough time and i'm talking about something that happened you know nearly 30 years ago but i came through that and i eventually could go back to this verse and say god was involved in that and he did work good for us according to his purpose so what i'm just acknowledging is sometimes this verse can be used almost as a i mean People say it kindly to each other, thinking they're doing the right thing. Something terrible happens and they say, don't worry, God is going to work good out of this. You know, well-meaning, but maybe not well-timed. Okay, as the Bible says, there's a time to, you know, weep with those who are weeping, to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And it's important to get your timing right. But nevertheless, this verse stands alone and what it says is absolutely true. You know, unless God were actively involved in shaping the impact of those things in us, it would be just random life events like everybody else. But God uses those things for his purposes in us. This is the big difference between those who are God's children and those who aren't yet. In his family, the, the believer, the one in God's family knows that we have a father, oh, the outline, we have a, a heavenly father who is involved in our life and working things that happen to us for our good, according to his purposes. But those who aren't, who don't identify with the father in heaven, an active person divine person who has control of all things, who who reject that thought, do not have the comfort that we have, knowing that actually there's someone working in those things and helping us. To the person outside of God's family, they're just random events that are hard, that are difficult, that are confusing. They're just things to endure. Whereas we can say I may not understand it, I may not like it, I may not get it, but one thing I do get, I know God is at work in this thing and I hold on to that. That's a great comfort, isn't it? It should be a great comfort to all Christians. These things are not random. One commentator puts it like this, It is the sovereign guidance of God that is presumed as the undergirding and directing force behind all events of life. This being so, it does not finally matter that much whether we translate it, all things work together for good or God is working in and through all things because we know that God is involved in all those things anyway. This is an incredibly positive and hope-filled way of interpreting life. But more than that, it is a powerful statement of trust in God's ability to form and shape us by using every aspect of life. Wow. Let's have a look at. I don't have my clicker. This is the outline of this passage that we heard read. There's three big movements in it. First of all, God is at work in all things. That's the first big thing. That's what we're dealing with now. Second, he then moves on to more of a personal. Detail of of issues no person can prevail against us and then he goes on to nothing that happens can separate us from God's love. So just events working for good. No, No person can, you know, destroy us and then we can't be separated from God's love. Here's an example. A couple having children. Of course, couples see the great blessing of a baby as they wait for those months to go by. They look forward to it, but they don't see really all the other things that come about. You can't see them until you've gone through it. They don't see, whilst they're waiting for the baby to come, the sleepless, the sleep interrupted nights that await them. They don't see the extended frustration of crying spells that seem to never end and can drive you mad. They don't see the breastfeeding dramas. They don't see the extra workload and stress. And and yet all that thing, all those things combined are being used by God for his purposes. They didn't know it at the time. They just thought a baby's a great blessing. Someone to love, someone to, you know, a child. But God is had another plan. Yes, I've got plan A, it's to bless you with a baby i got plan B I'm also working on that you're not quite aware of. I'm trying to shape and mould you two parents according to my purposes. So I'm going to use a crying baby to test your patience, so you grow in patience. I'm going to use the frustrations of breastfeeding so that you cry out for help. I'm going to use that whole experience to humble you and to allow you to feel for other people's pain as well who go through what you're going through. It's going to be good and God's going to be going, what a great plan I had to bring babies into this world. Because that all works according to my purposes. All these things God was trying to do in us, but having a baby just makes his job of educating and shaping us so much more easier for God. Think of Joseph. He didn't see the point of being thrown down a well, sold into slavery and falsely accused by the lust-filled and rejected wife of his owner. All those things had happened. He didn't know what was going on. But God used his imprisonment for good, to bring him to the attention of Pharaoh and raise him up to be the prime minister. And ultimately to open a door for his extended family, which they didn't know who he was, to come into Egypt and be saved and to be built up as a whole nation. Which ultimately then they left with a great blessing as, you know, a million people. Huge. Years later, God used the bad things that happened to Joseph ultimately for the good of God's people. God was at work to bring out good. That's another clear example. And we can even think of Abram, which we're looking at Bible study during the week, where Abram, you know, did a very naughty thing and told Pharaoh or the people there when he went to Egypt that his wife was actually his sister, which was a half truth and half lie. So, you know, but ultimately it led to blessing for him and his family, since. Once Pharaoh realised she was already married, he let them go and blessed them. So again, God used what was happening to Abram and Sarah, which was a very difficult thing and, you know, a mistake really by by, uh, Abram that, you know, no one's going to say that's the right thing to do to tell people that your wife is your sister and let her be married to someone else (laughs) no one can agree that that's a good thing even a mistake God can use for his purposes to mould and to shape and bring about his plan this is the great thing about scripture it doesn't hide the mistakes and the errors of God's people but it's not for us to focus on that it's for us to focus on how great God is that he can even use those things for his purposes that's an encouragement for us. It's important here to understand that God is at work in all these things that happen to us. He's not asleep. He's not on long service leave. He is actively working out his purposes in all things. This is victory. This is a win for us. And you should always count your wins. Now we see, as we proceed through this in verse 29, what else God is doing according to his purposes in us. He's called us to be saved, and he's foreknew us. He knew us before eternity began. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. He then called us. He justified us, declared us to be innocent of all sin, and then he glorified us in the future. So God's work of salvation is part of what the good and according to God's purposes that he's doing in us, that whole plan that he's working working out. What we see here is this great spiritual individual factory assembly line, if you like. Think of that, you know, going along a belt, each... each uh, as the belt continues on, that that raw lump is changed by one process and then another process and then another until it comes out, you know, what it's meant to be. Well, in that sort of sense, God is at work. He foreknew us. He placed that lump of humanity on the assembly line and that proceeded along. And then the blueprint of what it was meant to look like was in stamped, stamped upon it. It was to be conformed to the image of Christ. Bang! And then it goes a little bit further and then the person believes the gospel and then that God declares them justified and right with him. Bang! Another part of the assembly line. And then he makes us more like Jesus in real life. Bang! Some more part of the assembly line takes place until finally the finished product emerges where God's people are glorified in the new heaven and new earth with new bodies as we talked about last week. The good that God does needs to be seen in relationship with his purposes. His purpose is to conform us to Jesus, to make us more like him. That's God's ultimate aim and what he's doing in us. You know, it's for our good according to his purposes. Not just good that we might think is good, because our you know our definition or our vision of what good might look like might be very different to god's definition so the good according to his purposes means i'm working things for good so that you would become more like jesus which again is a challenge to us ah what's my real purpose in life what what am i trying to become is it aligned with what god's trying to make me into The glass half empty person should see here great reason to be positive about things that happen to us. That God is bringing about his good purposes in this thing. You may not see it with your eyes just now, but you can at least be comforted knowing that God is doing good. So the glass half empty person, that's the way you are, it's okay, be challenged by this. To say, oh, I shouldn't be so negative about that thing because God is at work. The glass half full person, the natural positive person, should see reasons here to acknowledge God's activity and not just their own positive attitude to life. If it wasn't for God doing it, it would be a gloomy picture. The glass half full person is naturally a positive thinker. But usually that positive thinking comes back to the fact that they're usually very competent pe- people who can do many things, who can change situations around, you know, and they can get out a lot of difficult stuff in life because they just know they've got the ability to do it, which leads to a positive person. But that person can also be very self-trusting. I'll figure it out because I always have. Therefore, I can be positive. This verse challenges the positive glass-half-full person To acknowledge that it's God doing it, not them. Does that make sense? Now he moves on in verse 31 to get more personal. And this is the second great statement he makes. God is for us and no one can prevail against us in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He moves from things and life events to people themselves who who which person can prevail against us it's getting a bit more personal now of course people may try to prevail against the Christian Paul himself faced many human much human opposition and persecution he lists many many times all the tough things he went through and all the people who opposed him and threw him in jail and he had to escape, you know, through a hole in a wall. And he had to appeal to Caesar when he was falsely accused by the Jews in Jerusalem. You know, he, he was locked up in jail many times. You know, people did give Paul a hard time. He was constantly confronted with that. So when he says who can prevail against us, he doesn't mean no one's going to try. But... What Paul does here is he proves that God is with us and no one can prevail against it. And he proves it by pointing us to Jesus that God himself loved us so much. He's so for us that he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Again, he reminds us that any accusation against us, anyone trying to condemn us, make us feel bad, make us feel, you know, you're wrong. And condemn you you know make you feel small if anyone tries to do that remind yourself they're not the judge they might be putting themselves in the position of judging you but they're not the judge he says it's God who judges it's Christ who justifies he is the one who ultimately has the say about these things and he has already declared us innocent. God has already declared us innocent and proven it by Jesus' resurrection and now this same Jesus, who is the judge, he actually prays for us. He's so much on your side that he's praying for you. He's not condemning us. So who can stand against that? You know, remind yourself of that. If someone is against you, God, the ultimate judge, is for me. And he proved it by sending Jesus to die his own son. He didn't that's how much He loved you. He gave up his own son for you, and this son is praying for you. This is intensely personal now. People can and do make life hell for others, through jealousy, bitterness, envy. They seek to pull down others, maybe who are better than themselves or who are challenged to what they think should happen. People can give other people terrible time. They fight over territory, whatever they perceive their territory to be and other people a threat. They pull down tall poppies. They climb over other people for positions of power. People can be very evil creatures. But God is able to preserve us from them, to keep us strong through the battle and to give us peace in the middle of personal attack. God is for you. No one can prevail against you. So many of David's Psalms were written whilst in the middle of deep personal attack. Or at least written after reflecting on something that happened to him a time ago in the past when that happened to him. Yet he knew God would ultimately preserve him. If you have people in your life that hurt you, be assured that God's care and love will prevail. And he will give you victory. He's assured us of that. How broad, we ask, is the scope in verse 32? Have a look at it. Of all things, because it's a very challenging Sentence there, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? <laughs> That's a lot, isn't it? How broad is that scope? It could mean that all future things in heaven and the new earth and the new heaven, all those things are yours, Yeah, which they are. Because that's very true as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, we have that great promise that all things in the new heaven and new earth are ours as co-heirs. Or just he could mean that all things necessary for salvation. In other words, God's word, the Holy Spirit, the fact that we're adopted every spiritual blessing that God has given us all things necessary for our salvation, which again is true. But one commentator says we should not restrict the meaning to just salvation as such, but include all those blessings, spiritual and material, that we require on the path toward that final salvation. Of course, without going into any prosperity gospel, prosperity doctrine, you know, you can have that expensive car because you're God's children sort of thing, you know, that's. He's not saying that but I do believe what he's saying here how will he not graciously give us all things it's all that all things in the new heaven and new earth all things necessary for our salvation and all things necessary as we serve God along the way. But the overriding feel of the verses here is that we are cared for by a father God who would not even hold back his own son from dying to rescue us. That's how much he loves us. This God so generous and gracious would not hold back anything else that we need. That's good. (laughs) Is that a glass half full person? It definitely is, spiritually I mean. We have to be that and finally the big last thing that he says is nothing can separate us from God's love from verses 35 to 39 for I'm convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love ...of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. From working all things for good... ...to protecting us from accusation and condemnation... ...now Paul tells us our great connection to God's love. That that feeling in us of love... ...the fact of being loved because Jesus loved us so much... ...he went to the cross for us... ...he saw us and loved us, wanted to rescue us... ...he acted for us... ...he went through all that pain and suffering... Because he loved you. Nothing can separate or change that. No, in all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What does he mean, we are conquerors, when these things come our way? Again, it's, a, it's an amazing statement. Well, this description comes from the more than conquerors part, more than conquerors comes from a Greek word which carries the idea of extraordinary exceeding victory in a continual state so it, it, it keeps happening to us to perpetually increase in triumph is what he's saying here so he's not trying to hold back and say oh yeah okay you won good on you he's saying not only you won you won and you won and you keep on winning Does this mean none of these troubles will ever happen to us or that we can eliminate them from our life? No, clearly not. Based on the context of this passage, even more, it's important to note that many of these things did happen to Paul. To be more than conquerors means we face trials of life with the certainty that we are not alone. God's with us. We have a mighty father who fights for us. We approach the darkest valleys with confidence knowing that nothing can happen to us that's not permitted by our Heavenly Father. Life's not out of control. We have this great promise of eternal life as we face problems and the presence of Almighty God every moment of the day with him. That we will see him face to face. That no sin of ours And no attempt by the enemy can steal the loving care of God from us. That makes us more than conquerors. More than conquerors. Matthew Henry sums it up. It is only through Christ that loved us that the merit of his death taking the sting out of all those troubles, the spirit of his grace strengthening us, And enabling us to bear them with holy courage and constancy and coming in with special comforts and supports. Thus, we are conquerors, not in our own strength, but in the grace that is uh, in Christ. We are conquerors by virtue of our interest in Christ's victory. He hath overcome the world for us, both the good things and the evil things, so that we have nothing to do but to pursue the victory and to divide the spoil And so are more than conquerors. This is an overwhelmingly almost unimaginable human confidence and shout of victory. (laughs) It's just you can't walk away from this like downhearted. I mean, if you've been having a hard week, if you're a bit down by the things of this life, you're in the right place today. Because read what that says. It's amazing. And it's far more better than just, you know, positive thinking. It's God actively at work. I mean, I just still can't, cannot get over Penrith's win in the NRL. <laughs> like, I was really going for them. And I feel for them because, you know, once in our life we lived in the Blue Mountains and we used to travel down to Penrith to watch them play football back in the day, you know. And, you know, we became sort of a little bit of Penrith followers. But I still have that image after they won this third grand final in a row of the crush of players. You remember that, those of you? They were all jumping on top of each other, celebrating, you know, throwing their arms up in there, jumping on top of each other, you know, hugging each other, you know. Do you remember that? When you saw that victory celebration of those players, right? It was overwhelming, not just we've won the grand final, but we've done it three times. And we've done it in a way that was so spectacular, coming back from defeat and just crushing them in the end, you know. But, and that's the feel of this, this passage here. That It's like Jesus is, we're all around Jesus and he's resurrected from the dead and we're all saying, yay, you won. And we're a part of that victory, because it's going to keep going on. But those who might read this as a glass half empty, people, it's like you're in that grand final crush, and you're walking around gloomy. And you're saying to yourself, well, yeah, we won, but we could have done better. We could have tried harder. And oh, yeah, we won, but I made some mistakes. And, oh, gee, I feel sorry for the Broncos. And, oh, okay, we won three in a row, but I'm worried that we we may not win next year. Or, gee, my foot hurts. You know, would anyone in that Penrith celebration think like that? No way. Okay? That overwhelming positiveness is what we are being invited to to know about, to share and to live in as we serve Jesus. Are you facing troubles from events in life and from people? Can you see that God is doing some good in it? Even if you can't see it right now, are you prepared to at least pray? God, open my eyes that I will see your good. Are you just ready to pray that? That's all I'm saying. Because I know the, the hurt. You may not be ready, but at least ask God to help you be ready. Are your goals of what good looks like aligned with God's purposes? Because if you are aiming at the wrong things, then all these things that happen will not seem good at all. But God wants us conformed to Christ's image. That is his purpose for us. That must be our individual purpose in life. Because when we have that as our purpose, then everything then does make sense. Let's pray. Father God, you are so much bigger and better and perfect than us And you can work things that we think are disasters. You can work them for good according to your purpose. We can't do that. But we trust that you can and will and have before and will continue to do that. Help us to have eyes to see that. When we face problems from others, they hurt. But help us to see that nothing can separate us from an overwhelming love of God, that we are still loved and cherished by God. Amen. Amen.